Hello, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking at the University of Cambridge and beyond. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Shreya Iyer, who is a university reader in economics and fellow of St. Catherine's College, Cambridge. Shreya was one of my absolute favourite supervisors, so I was incredibly excited to get to talk to her about her research on the economics of religion. At the core of it, the economics of religion tries to answer three fundamental questions. The first question is understanding what determines religiosity. It was long thought that as countries get richer, they also become more secular. But Shreer notes that in reality, it is much more complicated than that. Despite many developing countries having had consistently high GDP growth, religiosity has actually increased. Shreer believes that much of this is because the benefits of growth have been distributed very unequally, leading religious organisations to play a really important role in providing public goods. The second question that this field examines is how religion may be described as social capital, that is, to what degree it fosters a shared sense of identity and trust amongst individuals. Lastly, the third question is what the micro and macro consequences of religion are. Perhaps most famously, Max Weber proposed back in 1904 that the Protestant work ethic was an essential component of modern-day capitalism, and we briefly discuss what modern studies have to say about this. We then spend much more time on Shreer's own work, first talking about how religion affects fertility decisions, and then how religious riots affect political elections in India. One aspect I think every budding researcher should listen to is Shreer talking about her own personal experiences of doing fieldwork and what impact actually meeting the people she was studying had on her. This was a really fascinating conversation and we cover a lot of ground. I think all of it is very much understandable to non-economists, but if you ever feel a bit lost, especially with visualising some of the theory, do have a look at our write-up, which contains some more detailed explanations and diagrams. But without any further ado, here's the episode. So my name is Shreya Ayer, and I'm a development economist uh, at the Faculty of Economics at the University of Cambridge. Uh, I'm also a fellow of St. Catherine's College here, and I work in areas uh, such as uh, development, health, education, and religion. And uh, out of interest, what made you want to be an economist in the first place? So I think um, I was very interested in inequality, uh, for, you know, being Indian, uh, being brought up both in the United States and in India. Um, I saw two very different societies at an early stage of my life. So that inequality was something that I was really interested in, different countries. Uh, but I was also interested in issues surrounding social diversity. Uh, and these were the reasons why I thought economics might be an interesting subject to investigate and to study uh, in order to learn more about inequality as well as to learn more about uh, social diversity. And uh, as you said, one of the areas that you're working on now is the economics of religion, which is what we'll be talking about in this episode. Um, How did you come to discover this field of economics and what is it? So I think, um, you know, we know that religion is a a, a really big global phenomenon. Uh, 84% of the world today say that they have a religious affiliation. So uh, as a phenomenon, it was clearly very interesting uh, to me and uh, to others. 
But I also thought that um, you know economists had actually said less about this particular subject than probably many other disciplines, such as philosophy and theology and history and sociology. So one of the reasons I got into the area of the economics of religion was because I felt that perhaps economists could say a little more about contributing to global dialogues about religion, um, and and that maybe this was an area where one could also learn about other disciplines as well as economics uh, while you're actually uh, understanding economic phenomena. And I'm sure some of the listeners, when they kind of hear this term, right, economics of religion, are a bit taken aback because it seems like a a very weird combination, right? Uh, When we think of economics, we think of very rational decision making. And when we think of religion, you know, that is a very emotional, spiritual aspect of people's lives. Um, How can these two things work together? And what can economics really tell us about uh, religion? No, that's absolutely true. I think normally if you hear the expression economics of religion, as you say, uh, it sounds very odd to put these two words together. We think of religion very much as based on individual faith. Uh, We think it's about spirituality. Uh, It's very much about service. Uh, There are moral dimensions, ethical dimensions and so forth. And then we think about a subject like economics, which is very much about costs and benefits and incentives and competition. And uh, somehow these two ideas uh, and words don't really seem to go uh, very well with each other. Uh, but I think what what we are arguing in this field is that there are economic theories and statistical tools that you can apply to understand the evolution of religion in society. And that's really what the economics of religion is trying to do. It's not really asking um, you know, fundamental questions such as how do I attain salvation? Uh, we're leaving that to philosophers and others. What we're really asking is um, you know, rather practical questions such as what are the costs and benefits to me to be believe in salvation. Uh, So the concerns of the economist of religion is actually much more perhaps prosaic and practical uh, rather than uh, very noble and spiritual. Uh, But nevertheless, we do think that uh, economics does have something to offer, you know, broadest uh, dialogues uh, about religion. So I know next to nothing about the economics of religion. Can you maybe give some examples of these more prosaic questions which you're trying to answer? So so we're looking at things such as uh, incentives, uh, what makes people want to uh, be members of a particular religious organization, for example, Uh, what is the role of uh, religion in people's lives, does it help with well-being, does it help with mental health issues, physical health issues, Um, and more broadly, uh, are we really interested in things like inequality, does religion actually, uh, is it influenced by economic inequality, in turn, does it influence uh, inequality. This is really some of the questions that uh, economists would be concerned with. Uh, And of course, the biggest question, which I think underlies all economics of religion studies, is how does this actually relate to economic growth? Because uh, we know that we've seen rapid economic growth right across the world. But at the same time, uh, we've also seen an increase in the influence of religion. And some people would have predicted that actually with lots of secularization and economic growth and scientific developments, there should be less uh, belief in the irrational rather than more. Whereas that's really the big paradox that we're seeing, that there's an increase in religiosity with economic growth. So that's the sort of the much bigger, uh, deeper question that this field is in. Right. Well, that is an amazing segue because that is actually one of the the questions I really wanted to talk about is that relationship between 
wealth and growth. Because as you said, I guess from a very like European perspective as well, we have this image that as countries get richer, people get less religious. But as you've pointed out, and as some studies have pointed out as well, the image really isn't as clear. Could you talk a bit about why you think um, this pattern which held in Europe isn't holding out for the rest of the world and maybe highlight a couple of the anomalies that really stick out there? Yes, no, that's absolutely true. You know, I think overall the richer countries have become more secular over time, but the world as a whole has actually become more religious and studies have actually pointed this out. I think um, there are, of course, big exceptions like the United States, which is both the richest country in the world as well as the most religious country in the world. So this is why this relationship is actually quite complex. Um, One of the reasons why uh, we economists think that religion might continue to be really important in very different parts of the world is also because it might be related to other factors, such as uh, provision of public goods. So things like education and healthcare and credit and other things. And if religious organizations are providing some of access to what economists call these kinds of public goods, then it could be that religions are actually becoming important, not just because because of the faith-based ideas that they're promoting, but also because of these services which they're providing, which is really the kind of work that I've been doing, for example. So you've mentioned as well that inequality, right, plays a, a big role in this. Can you talk a bit more about why that might be a better measure than growth in like understanding this relationship? Yes. I mean, I think one of the reasons why we've seen this rise in religiosity and religion, uh, while you're also experiencing greater economic growth, is because, you know, as our macroeconomics has, has shown us, uh, with economic growth, you always get a lot of inequality, uh, as increasing inequality as well. And my feeling is that as populations are becoming more aspirational, uh, as this income inequality is actually rising in many different parts of the world, developing countries, emerging economies, and so forth, the demand for all of these services is actually rising too. Everyone wants their kids to have good education, good health. Uh, You want people to have access to credit, good labor market opportunities, and so forth. And I think in parts of the world where sometimes the state is not providing some of these services as well or in full supply as we might like, other entities are stepping in, amongst them the religious organizations. And this is, of course, contributing both to the spread of religion as well as to the spread of the strength of these organizations because they're also providing these services in turn in response to the demand that is coming with the rise in income inequality. That's really how I see inequality also linking to the strength of religion. So we'll delve into these uh, like public goods things in a second. But before we do that, I wanted to ask as well if you can maybe explain one of the theoretical models that is used to predict why we might expect that wealth uh, and religion uh, have this inverse relationship. I think the, the very simple way to, to kind of think about it without getting too technical is, yes, we, we do think that, uh, you know, there are uh, individuals who, uh, you know, can spend their time in work and they can spend their time in leisure, religious activities and others, for example. And that essentially there may be a trade off between uh, the time you spend in, in these other activities and the time that you might actually be spending in work. Uh, and there are many different models, actually that have thought about religion in that kind of uh, in that kind of context and uh, if you're thinking about it in that kind of context then there are some arguments that have suggested and it's mainly come from sociologists rather than economists uh, that uh, you know some religions might actually encourage 
thrift and savings and, uh, you know, incentives towards hard work, which has then eventually contributed to higher economic uh, growth in some parts of the world as historically. So I think that's that's really a one way of actually thinking about the link between income and religion. Certain religions might actually prescribe uh, certain way, you know, certain ways in which work is done, which can then influence savings, investments. And ultimately, we know those factors then affect growth and, you know, subsequently inequality. This sounds a lot like what I've heard about Weber's Protestant work ethic. Is that idea still floating around and how has that literature developed? That idea is very much at the heart of the economics of religion. Uh, You know, yes, you're absolutely right. It is Max Weber's idea of the Protestant work ethic. Uh, Many contemporary economists uh, like Robert Barrow and Rachel Cleary and others have done a lot of work at looking at religion and economic growth, testing the Weber hypothesis for many different countries. And I think that 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 really is one aspect which people are looking at, both at country level and at the individual level. Is it just that there are certain religious norms and beliefs that might encourage Um, you know, certain kinds of work activity, certain kinds of uh, behaviors that then might eventually contribute to economic growth. Then again, there's another strand of research which is saying, well, does the economic growth and the inequality and so forth itself contribute to changes in religion? That's the kind of work that I and others have been doing, which has been looking more at how the inequality then comes back to looking at at religion. And of course, you know, if you look at different parts of the world, um, if you take Islam, for example, you know, there's some some body of research that's also been looking at how, you know, certain theological principles in the religion might be influencing things like interest, maybe influencing financial markets, legal institutions in some countries, and that this might also explain some kind of disparities that you see between different parts of the world. So there's lots of different kinds of research that goes on within this umbrella of economics of religion. We're focused more on what economics says about religion, but you've also got this other area of what religion might actually, you know, say about various economic decisions as well. You mentioned the uh, work by Barrow and McCleary. So interestingly, one of the things that they found is that it's actually very specific religious beliefs that are correlated with increased growth. Can you talk a bit about what those beliefs are and why we think it is them that um, increase economic growth and not others? So in their work, it was very much about the belief in heaven, the belief in the afterlife and so forth um, that, that is you know, important uh, for economic growth. Having said that, you know, there is also a lot of diversity across religions in that, you know, some religions do prescribe church attendance on a regular basis. Others uh, don't prescribe that. Um, So actually looking at both dimensions, looking at both beliefs uh, and how that might affect growth, as well as what, uh, you know, I think they call belonging, which is uh, a church attendance and actually attending a place of uh, worship. Both of these aspects might actually influence economic growth uh, as well in different ways for different religions. At the moment, we've kind of framed it as the economy affecting religion. But as you rightfully said, religion can also affect individual decisions. And uh, one of those things that it can affect is fertility. Uh, Can you talk very briefly about uh, the literature there and your own work in that as well? Sure. Uh, So this is actually a a major topic that uh, many other disciplines have addressed, you know, notably people who work in the field of demography, sociology, history. Uh, You know, uh, there is the view that uh, if we're looking at the effect of religion on fertility behavior, then it can actually work through different channels. 
could work through some kind of what I think as an economist I would call a pure religion effect, that there are theological beliefs in a religion that might influence people in terms of when they get married, how many children they have, whether or not they're using contraception or not. So that's one channel. Um, but then there's also an, another channel in terms of socioeconomic characteristics that different religious groups might actually demonstrate different educational characteristics, land ownership characteristics, other characteristics. And that also, of course, influences through a kind of income effect, uh, how many children you might you might have. And it's really, if you're looking at the effect of religion on demographic behavior in this way, you're actually looking at the balance between these various effects, a sort of pure religion effect compared to something that's being driven driven by education and socioeconomic characteristics. And that's really what I tested when I was doing my PhD here in Cambridge, uh, you know, many years ago now. Uh, I went to South India, did some field work there, and I, we were essentially trying to establish uh, for Hindus, Muslims, and Christians in South India, whether um, this pure religion effect mattered uh, or mattered more than the socioeconomic effects. And, you know, it just the posted stamp version of the findings that we that we found was that essentially, yes, religion did matter. It did matter for Hindus and Muslims and Christians and others, but that the effect of religion was mediated by socioeconomic characteristics, which meant that if you had two people from two different religions who were both educated, highly educated, then you didn't see any difference in the fertility rates. So a very highly educated Hindu woman and a very highly educated Muslim woman uh, would both have very, be having similar numbers of children. Um, so the, it was not that religion was not important. It was important, but its effect is mediated by the effect of the socioeconomic characteristics. And so you need to control for the economic characteristics before you can make a claim that it's only religion that's important. That's really what I was arguing at the time. And especially in the Indian context, this has a very important political dimension as well, right? Uh, can you talk a bit about that? Yes, it does. Um, so in India, it's, you know, for listeners who, who might or might not know, it's, an, it's a Hindu majority country. Uh, so about 80% of the population is Hindu, 15% of the population is Muslim, and uh, Christians and others are about uh, about 3%. Um, so although the Muslim community is, is uh, you know, 15% of the population, it's 15% of, you know, 1.2 billion. So we're talking about, you know, uh, you know millions of people here, uh, even if they are a minority community. And there have been across the decades in India lots of debates about, Hindu fertility and Muslim fertility and which communities' fertility rates have been growing faster or not, as the case may be, and why, and so forth. And, 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 and that has often um, uh, created you know, a, a, a political aspects to these issues uh, as well. But I think the underlying argument which the economists have always been making in the Indian context, and I think that does continue to hold, is that this very much depends upon uh, levels of education. And uh, for example, in the sample that I was looking at, on average, the Muslim women had much lower education than the Hindu women and were therefore demonstrating higher fertility in that sample. And this is true, you know, overall in the country uh, as well. So I think uh, the, the key thing here is, is um, you know, I've always been arguing that, yes, though this relationship between religion and demography does have, you know, political connotations and, and it can be, you know, the information from these studies can be used in various ways, it's really important to look at the economics and it's really important to look at characteristics like education and female labor force participation, land ownership, credit access, and these other factors, which we know affects demographic behavior anyway. 
And the um, the other really interesting result is there's a gendered aspect to it as well, right? When religion does have an effect, it has a very gendered effect. Uh, can you talk about that and the daughter aversion finding that you you found in your paper? Yes. So 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 this is this is a, an interesting aspect of this religion and demography literature because on on the one hand, uh, it, it's usually argued that communities that have very high infant mortality also demonstrate very high fertility. So if you're losing a lot of children to child death, uh, you're likely to replace them uh, quickly. Now, what's interesting in the Indian context is that the community that has the higher fertility, in this case, it's the Muslim community, actually have much lower female uh, infant mortality. Uh, So that's an interesting paradox. So what we're finding in some of these data is that, um, you know, it's not actually consistent with the broader them demographic theory that the community that has the higher infant mortality has the higher fertility. We're actually showing that where female infant mortality is concerned, it's actually lower amongst the Muslim community than it is amongst the Hindu community for various cultural and other uh, reasons. And, and, uh, and so I think, you know, when we're looking at demography, of course, it's, it's, uh, it's about uh, fertility, mortality, and migration. So if you're looking at the mortality aspect of it and you're focusing on infant and child mortality, then there is this gendered difference by religion, which seems to me to be, you know, quite interesting uh, and also uh, gives, um, suggests, uh, you know, quite a, a range of interesting policy uh, outcomes as well. Because uh, on the one hand, you may ask communities to control their fertility if you feel the country has an overpopulation problem. But on the other hand, um, if uh, female mortality is actually much lower in a particular community, that's a sign of a good thing, uh, you know, if the, if the female mortality is actually low. So it, it's getting that balance right between your you know fertility policy and your mortality policy and and how you're going to reconcile that with religion it's a tricky question but uh it's 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 definitely something that's uh you know at least i've felt in previous research was worth investigating so now to move to a different but tricky topic you mentioned before that religion plays a really important role in the developing world for providing these non-religious services and this is something i want to unpack and maybe talk a bit about the theory and then talk about a bit about the evidence that you found for this as well. But let's start by maybe setting the picture because one of the things that is super interesting about your work as well is that you do an awful lot of field work. You're out there interviewing people and really gaining an insight as well for what it means, uh, for, for what religion is right in the developing world. Could you briefly talk a bit about those experiences, maybe those challenges as well uh, that you faced in collecting those interviews and collecting the actual data that you would then anal- analyze? Yes, I mean, I, I think this actually started when I was a PhD student. I was uh, wanting to do a PhD, as I just explained, in religion and demography. At that time, uh, I, I didn't have access to a lot of data. And so uh, I was told by my wonderful PhD supervisor at the time, Sheila Ogilvie, uh, uh, that I should go out there and collect it. Uh, so so I, that's how I ended up spending, you know, actually very early on in my career, uh, uh, you know, a, a whole year in South India, uh, collecting 
collecting the data for my PhD. And uh, that actually got me very interested in surveys because I actually met some very eminent Indian sociologists who were working in the region that I was working in, in Karnataka and South India. And uh, they explained to me the importance of doing survey-based research and integrating it with the statistical and the, you know, the economic theory research that I had been trained in in Cambridge. And so uh, that's when I started getting into the whole idea of using survey research and in some ways blending it with the statistical analysis that, you know, we're taught to do as economists. Um, and and I think the, the greatest uh, reward of doing survey-based research is that you are actually out there in the real world world, talking to people, getting a real world understanding of what their concerns are. And you have a much better understanding of issues as well as people. And if you like doing that kind of research, I think it's very important to go out there and do that kind of work. The greatest challenge of doing it, certainly in my my case, was I wasn't trained to do it. Uh, I wasn't trained in sociology. I didn't have the skills initially uh, to know how to do good survey-based research and you know good qualitative interviews. Um, and so that was a you know a, a very steep learning experience uh, for me at the time. And uh, I think with surveys, you always keep learning. Uh, nowadays, of course, you know not all surveys are in person, a lot of my colleagues and others, you know, they use online surveys uh, and, they're, and, and they're, they're collecting data of using telephone surveys and other surveys. But if you're doing it sort of the old fashioned way, which is actually going and talking to people and you're in their homes and you're, you know, you're having uh, discussions with them, I think it's actually hugely rewarding. You learn a lot. You learn about what the important questions are to ask, which you can then go back uh, to Cambridge or wherever and, uh, you know, you can sit down with your survey data and then think about how to how to analyze it. Um, so I think there are rewards in terms of it's teaching you new skills, you're learning about the real world, and there are challenges in terms of knowing how to do it best. Uh, of course, we make lots of mistakes when we, when we do surveys. Uh, I remember uh, when I did my very first survey, again, for my PhD, and I gave it to a very eminent Indian sociologist who had done many of these surveys to look at and he looked at all of my questions and then he took a red pen and he put you know marks right through many of my questions and said you know you cannot possibly go to someone and ask a question like that you have to reword it this way and so you know you, you sort of learn you know learning by doing and consulting with others you know how exactly to ask questions in an appropriate uh, way uh, uh, to the people that you're talking to. This must be like a very sensitive area to ask questions about. There's like this quote of like, uh, for a dinner table conversations, you should never talk about politics, religion, and money. And I'm guessing those are the exact three topics, right? <laughs> those are all the topics I work about. on. <laughs> um, like, are people generally very open about this? Or is it hard to kind of like get to the, the truth of these things? So I think most people, you know, if if they, they know that you're a genuine surveyor and you're interested in the welfare of the, the people that you're talking to, are actually very open and honest about their opinions on, on, on the questions. This is why I think, you know, the manner in which you ask the questions is also important. If they know that you're sincere about your scholarship and that, uh, you know, you're doing it for the welfare of the community, they, they you know, they will, you know, invariably 
tell you, um, you know, what they think. At the same time, when you're designing surveys, and this is what people who do, uh, and, you know, very often nowadays, you know, I tend to work with survey organizations that have a lot of experience in designing surveys. Um, you also include various questions in the survey to make sure that, uh, you know, what economists call the difference between stated preferences and revealed preferences. You know, you, you, you know, some people may just say things in a survey because they think that's what the interviewer wants to hear. But if you design the survey in a very effective way, you will probably be able to get at the revealed preference as well as the stated preference. Uh, and, and that's really the art of doing the, the surveys, I think. Can you maybe give an example of something important that you learned from this fieldwork and from conducting these surveys that you wouldn't have learned just from looking at the numerical data? I think, you know, I remember in the very first uh, set of surveys I did, uh, it was in, um, it was a hot afternoon in Ramnagaram Taluk in Karnataka. Uh, and I was interviewing, uh, you know, this lady about her past and, uh, the, you know, when she got married, the number of children she had and so forth. We were actually sitting uh, outside her, you know, little home. And um, it was, it was, I remember it was a very hot afternoon and suddenly uh, in the middle, um, she burst out crying. And uh, I was very worried because I thought maybe I had asked some question that had uh, offended her. And I was asking about her life and, and so forth. And she simply burst out crying. And then I was very uh, upset at the time. And I, I looked at her and I said, you know, I'm so sorry. You know, why are you crying? Have I offended you? And she said, no, you haven't offended me at all. She said, uh, I'm crying because um, I wonder when you're asking me these questions, um, how will it actually change my life? How will your doing your survey actually change my life? Will it change my life? Uh, and I, I think that was, I think, one of the most profound moments for me when I was doing the work, because I realized at that point that when you are doing uh, the work, it's very important that once you've done it, that it does actually change someone's life in a good way at the end of it. So, I, for example, when I finished that survey in the PhD and so forth, I was very particular to feed it back to that particular, you know, district of India to make sure that, you know, some of the recommendations that came out of the thesis could actually be implemented. But that um, episode when she said, you know, burst into tears and said to me, how is it actually going to change my life? I mean, that has stayed with me, as you can see, you know, 20 years on, uh, simply because I think it reinforced, you know, why we do what we do. Can you explain a bit about what non-religious services look like in the developing world? Yes. So I, I think uh, here when we're thinking about non-religious services, we should clarify these, are, we're calling them non-religious, but they're essentially welfare services of various kinds. So it's things like education and healthcare, credit, employment, childcare. Um, it, it's, it, and, and, you know, if we're kind of parceling that out, it's things like blood donation camps, flood relief, uh, microcredit schemes, cow lending schemes. It's all of these activities that religious organizations are providing. That's really what we're thinking of when we're talking about non-religious uh, services. And the reason these welfare services are important is because, you know, both there's a supply side constraint in terms of, uh, you know, lack of state provision, 
but there's also a demand side uh, in that populations now are very aspirational. And because they're very aspirational, they have a demand for all of these services. Someone has to provide them. If the state is not providing them adequately, then uh, you know other entities will step in. I'm arguing that in countries like India and other parts of the world, the religious organizations are now playing quite a big role in providing these services. And uh, these could be you know basic education services. In, it could be something like health. It could be sari distribution. It could be computer classes. It could be English language classes. Uh, we found one temple in Western India that was even providing aerobics classes for younger devotees uh, because this was a demand in the area. Area. So, so when we're thinking about these non-religious services, we're really thinking about a very broad range of welfare services. Maybe a silly question, but this makes me wonder, why isn't it just secular institutions that are stepping in to provide these services? You know, it'd be strange, for instance, if my local church started putting on yoga classes and teaching kids computing and so on. So why isn't that the case in the developing world? I think the, the secular institutions are. I mean, there are many NGOs and others that are you know, operating, providing the same services. But I think the demand is very high and there's a room for lots of different entities essentially to provide services. The interesting thing about religious organizations and why I think they've been quite successful in providing these services is because they have legitimacy uh, both with the you know the masses and they also have legitimacy with the state. Um, you know um, many of these organizations are funded by community donations uh, and uh, you know in order to provide these services, what I argue is that it's quite costly. Uh, so we interviewed, for example, something I described in my recent book, um, several mosques uh, in India that are providing food distribution services, Hindu temples that are providing food distribution services. Very often they may have anywhere between 100 to 500 people, you know, coming in for lunch on a given day. Uh, and providing these services is actually quite costly. And so I think the religious organizations, uh, you know, they, they have the funds in many cases to do this through community donations, and they have the legitimacy to do it, both with the masses and the state. Uh, and this is why I think that, um, you know, they're quite, uh, they are there. They may not be the dominant player uh, in these in these markets, but I think there's room for lots of players, essentially, to provide these services. And then this might be like a very obvious question, uh, but why do they provide it then? Like, why does a church feel obligated uh, or a temple feel obligated to provide these services uh, if, as they, as you said, they they are very costly to provide? So I think the the over so this is a question actually we asked in our surveys, uh, which is I, I, you know which is described in my book, uh, the economics of religion in in India, which came out uh, about a year and a half ago. Now the overarching motive for a religious organization is um, spirituality service. You know this is the main uh, motive. And so for many religious organizations, providing these services may seem a moral obligation in itself. On the one hand. Um, is is you know and, and that that is you know is very well established, but on the other hand, what I'm arguing uh, in my book is that in addition to this very important moral obligation and reason for providing these services, in societies where you have many different religions and groups within religions that are competing with each other. 
there is also this uh, um, competition motive, which might also be influencing the provision of the services. Now, uh, this is where, you know, we're getting into ideas from economics, which might not sit that comfortably with the idea of a religious organization as a not-for-profit organization. Uh, but but essentially what, what we're, what we're what, you know, we had a whole bunch of questions uh, which we asked organizations about how much they knew about other welfare services being provided either by other organizations and sects within their own religion or other religions in their local area. And something that I document in my book is how much and how and what detailed knowledge uh, a, a temple or a mosque had about everybody else who was providing services in their local area. And it wasn't just uh, about other institutions within their own religion. They also knew what other religions were providing. And so what I'm arguing is that it's both the moral dimension, the service dimension, the faith dimension that is pushing the you know, provision of the services. But increasingly, um, we documented at least this, this uh, small competition dimension as well, uh, which I think is also uh, motivating the provision of the service. And just to clarify the nature of that competition, is the thought that if some other religious sect provides these non-religious services and we don't, then people are going to move away from us and towards them, and that's a bad thing? So, so you know, the economic theories from the economics of religion would argue that the non-religious service provision is related at some level to conversion, uh, that if you are providing these services, then, um, you know, it, and, and this uh, competition may be either within a religion or across religion. In the Indian context, there's, uh, you know, there's not as much conversion as you see in the United States, but it's more competition between sects within the same religion. Uh, so what they would argue here is that the reason they're providing some of these services is that, and uh, you have a sort of religious offering, which obviously, you know, people will uh, choose in terms of deciding whether to join a particular religious organization, but the non-religious services might also influence their decision-making to a degree. I think that's really where the, the non-religious services are then linked in to this broader idea of, uh, of why they're providing the services and its links to conversion. So there's a really interesting flip side uh, of this kind of topic, which is we now realize, right, that for individuals, it can be very beneficial to be part of a religious community. And this has led Yanakoni to say that religion might actually be a club good, um, can you briefly explain first, maybe to non-econ listeners, what a club good is, and then explain uh, what he means by that? Yes. So we've been talking till now quite a lot about this broad area of public goods, uh, so like education and, and so forth. Now, one type of public good is something that we call a club good. And what we mean by a club good is uh, well, the, the sort of technical definition is that it is excludable but non-rivalrous, and what that means is that uh, it's a good that has you know high excludability. You can include people in the good and exclude people in the good, but uh, it is uh, you know everyone can actually consume it. There's very little rivalry in terms of consumption of the good, and religion is a great example of a club good because you know uh, by its very definition. 
if you, you know, you can be included in a religious group or excluded from a religious group. You can't prevent someone else from consuming it um, if they want to, but you can exclude people from uh, the group uh, through various means. And uh, what Yannikone and others were arguing is that sometimes if you see religious organizations prescribing things like a particular way to dress or a particular way to eat or dietary restrictions or, or these kinds of things, that's the way in which they are including and excluding uh, uh, people and uh, you know, uh, influencing membership of the organization as well. There's a really interesting paper uh, on this by Berman. Uh, can you briefly explain uh, what Berman tested to see if uh, this model was onto something? So he was really looking at ultra-Orthodox Jews uh, in uh, Israel, and he was trying to explain why when you had broader changes in the labor market outside, um, uh, why was it that uh, you know uh, people were studying in the uh, yeshiva, in the religious schools, uh, long after when you would have thought that they would be studying. And you know he applies this model is essentially uh, to show that they were demonstrating commitment to the religion uh, in some ways by continuing in the in, in the religious school. I mean, the club goods model is, is um, you know, a very important way of thinking about religion. Of course, it originally comes from the ideas by Buchanan and others, actually from, you know, George Mason University. Many of the ideas came out of that, uh, came out of that school. It's the whole idea of public choice. But it's been applied to a range of areas, including religion. And the idea here in the religious context, both with the, and Berman's paper, of course, is just testing the club goods model in the context of a particular, um, in, in the context of a particular uh, community. You also have other work, for example, by Daniel Chen, who was looking at uh, the Indonesian financial crisis. And, you know, he found in his work, for example, that uh, there, when you had the Indonesian financial crisis, there was an increase in religiosity shown by, you know, attending madrasas. Uh, and it's the same kind of phenomenon testing this whole club goods idea and how, uh, you know, outside economic circumstances might then influence the, you know, uptake and the increase in religiosity. I think it might be beneficial for listeners to just explain uh, a bit more concretely, maybe how this kind of club good works and how like the signaling aspect of it works as well. So, so the idea here is that, you know, if you join a religious organization, there may be a tendency to what economists call free ride. Uh, so you don't demonstrate your commitment to uh, the religion and essentially, you know, some are demonstrating their commitment more than others. So what uh, this whole class of models was really trying to say is that you needed to signal your commitment to the the religion and the way you could actually signal your commitment to the religion was, uh, you know, you could do this by higher donations, by changes in dress, by dietary restrictions. And doing that signaling essentially um, um, signaled to other members of the religion that you were highly faithful to, uh, you know, to the religious proposition, essentially. And just to spell it out, um, that this signal or this commitment needs to be costly in some way as yes. well. That not everyone will will do it in the sense that um, choosing to dress in a certain way or choosing to have dietary restrictions in a certain way is costly. Yes. So that only people who really believe it would be willing to to make this trade-off and that way you can kind of separate between the free riders and the actual believers in that and religion. that's a really important point and and this is important because you know that's where the notion of the sacrifice which you talked about earlier luca comes in uh because you know you have to be willing to demonstrate your commitment by making the sacrifice uh or you know whatever the nature of that sacrifice might be 
okay, this is a definitely a silly question. But when I think about free riders, I think about people who are like consuming, but not contributing towards some good, right? So if I just, you know, take free public transport, but I don't pay any taxes, I'm free riding. But in the case of religion, I can imagine, you know, my local church would think, look, the more people we have in our congregation, the better. And we don't need to impose any costs on, on joining, you know, come right in. So in other words, what is this costly good that we want to screen free riders away from in the case of religion? It's, it's a religious good that you're buying into at one level. But for most religious organizations, they are also surviving on community donations. So, you know, people may be signaling their uh, commitment to a particular religious organization, but frequently they're also contributing either their money or their time uh, to, uh, you know, to, to, to the organization as well. So the reason that an organization would want more adherence is because, I know, we were talking earlier about providing all of these services and so forth, um, you know, the organization also needs support and with, that comes from the community of people who believe in it you know so so that, you know if we're looking at this you know purely in sort of very mechanistic economic terms we would say that it was you know either because of political support or because of monetary support or some of these factors that the organization wants the membership of all of, of all the adherents maybe to very briefly give an example to uh, listeners in the UK as well. Uh, and this is a bit of like an anecdote, but I know like a lot of primary schools in the UK um, are run by churches and those are often like the very good primary schools, uh, which have like a fixed number of places. So theoretically, uh, not every kid can go to one of these. So one of the requirements is that the child along with their parents turn up to church every Sunday. And that would be like a very, you know, costly signal in the sense that it's some time that you need to sacrifice. And people who also find going to church not as costly because for them it is a, a legitimate spiritual thing rather than free riding just to get into school that helps to get rid of some of them that's a great example <laughs> yeah so so you know i think this issue about you know religious schooling in general is is an important issue in different parts of the world you know whether you're looking at catholic schools in the us and the uk whether you're looking at madrasas in you know india and pakistan or whether you're looking at the you know the the yeshiva in the uh, israeli context you know the, the issues are actually very similar in uh, in in all of this it's the whole question of you know religious schooling how it fits with secular schooling and uh, you know how it responds to wider changes in economic uh, circumstances. The big debate at the moment, actually, as I see it, is really about, um, you know, where religious schooling and secular schooling actually fit with each other. Um, um, so in India, for example, uh, it is a secular schooling system, but there's also, a, you know, 5% of the Indian school going population currently goes to a religious school. And then, and that's for various reasons. And so one of the issues you want to think about is, is whether religious schooling complements secular schooling. Uh, and how uh, for certain populations and, you know, what are the issues around that? Uh, in other parts of the world, you know, you're thinking about integrating a religious schooling system with a secular schooling system. People come from different schools, but, you know, the labor market is open. Um, in the Indian context, uh, if people have gone exclusively through the religious schooling system, then uh, they're not able to compete directly in the open labor market. So that's causing, you know, other big issues uh, to, for, for, you know, uh, policymakers and others to be thinking about. So, so the reason that, you know, we're actually interested in the whole religious school issue is how it actually fits with, you know, broader debates in the economics of education and broader debates about secular schooling. 
And what, what might some of the solutions to this be then? So I think, um, you know, my way of actually looking at the issue, uh, Luca, is that you have to think about it as religious schooling and secular schooling being complementary to each other rather than in competition. I mean, that's really how I would think about it. So, for example, in the South Indian state of Kerala, there's a very successful model where children attend a religious school in uh, the morning and then, you know, from, say, five to seven, then they're going to a secular school a bit later. Uh, and that complementarity allows parents uh, to make sure their children have the religious education that they feel maybe they want for their children and, uh, you know, the secular education, which then ensures the employability later on when they graduate. So, so I think, you know, one of the big issues in this context is this uh, idea of the, comp I mean, for me, I think this complementarity between the religious education and secular education is actually quite crucial when you're thinking about uh, policy. Um, and it's going to be, I think, uh, quite crucial if the number of people who are attending religious schools in developing countries going forward rises, uh, as you know, in some countries it is. So I think that's, that's, that's really why this issue is important. The other issue is whether, um, you know, some of this religious instruction is actually happening in the secular school or not, if there is demand for it. So in a country like India, for example, it's a secular schooling system, but there's the majority religion, very significant minority religions and so forth. Ideally, what you would want is that all kids of all religions get education about all the religions. Uh, but, you know, if that's not possible, then how do you use the religious education system as a complement to the secular education system? Um, so that, you know, parents feel that the, you know, the demand for education, whatever it is, religious or secular, is being met appropriately. So we've talked about a lot of different aspects of religion. Uh, one of the other aspects, and this is quite a, a somber, sad aspect to actually be talking about, is that religion can also play an important role in how it incites violence against people. Can you briefly explain some of the work uh, that has been going on before we then delve into your own research uh, and your own empirical findings as well? Yes. So, so, so there is, uh, you know, as you say, you know, one of the reasons for studying religion is is because. Um, you know, we know religious conflict is prevalent right across the world. And many economists and others have been thinking about why it's the case that you're getting, um, you know, conflict and hatred and so forth. And of course, you know, one of the famous papers is Ed Glaser's paper on the political economy of hatred. This is this idea that, um, you know, hatred as you see it is, is not uh, irrational uh, per se, but that there is um, a demand uh, for hate speech on the one hand, uh, because, you know, there are participants who want to hear hateful stories about another group that could be a religious group, it could be a sports team, it could be, you know, just some other group. And at the same time, you have the supply uh, of hateful messages that might be coming from you know, politicians or media or clergy or, or whatever uh, to facilitate uh, this, um, you know, this, this uh, demand. Some of this economics work has also been suggesting that the level of hatred also goes up with, um, you know, uh, intergroup indifferences with inequality and, and so forth as well. It also depends a, a lot on uh, funding. And so with that kind of background in terms of the economics research, 
uh, a lot of the, uh, you know, economists who have been looking at this issue have then been looking at conflict in that kind of context um, and then how it affects other outcomes. So, for example, um, you know, in some of the work that I've been doing, we've been looking at religious riots and how it affects political outcomes. But it's it, the underlying model which is driving a lot of these developments is this idea of, you know, what they're calling the political economy of hatred, essentially. Hmm. And what I think is really interesting about this this model, um, and there's no way we'll be able to properly uh, lay it out on on a podcast, but it's like the role, as you said, that politicians play in this, and how they can often actually actively incite hatred. Uh, can you talk about like what the motivations behind this are, and actually like what some of the tactical motivations behind this are? So I haven't done very much research myself on what the you know the motivations behind this uh, you know uh, could be. Um, you know what what I've looked at more is uh, if you have had religious riots, has it actually affected, for example, electoral outcomes? And if you can show that it has affected electoral outcomes in some fashion, then that would provide a very clear motive for you know the inciting of of religious violence. This is a you know some work that I've been doing in in in, in the last few years as well, and I think that you know there we are finding evidence. That, uh, you know, if, if you have had uh, a riot in a particular area, this affects, um, you know, the election outcome in uh, the subsequent election, you know, a year after uh, the event has occurred. And that the effect on elections is of the order of about five to seven percent of the vote share, uh, an increase in the vote share caused by, uh, you know, an incident of religious conflict. Now. Uh, I think as economists, sometimes we're quite careful about attributing motives uh, to this. So, so, we, so we're not saying the religious riot caused the increase. Well, when we're saying the religious riot caused the increase in the vote share, what we're saying is we don't know fully the mechanisms behind which or why you know the riot itself was uh, was in was incited. Uh, in in the first place, it could be any number of causes. They could be political causes, economic causes, land disputes, other causes, religious causes. It could be, you know there are many different reasons that explain you know the incidence of a riot. But but what we're documenting essentially is that it does have this you know this this uh, uh, outcome uh, this effect on electoral outcomes to increase the vote share of the of the ruling parties. What we what we were arguing. So. Let's actually delve into this work a bit more because I'm actually really curious about how you came about with this headline figure because it's a super interesting figure of and super important as well, right? Um, for showing that religious rights do have a political effect. But how on earth would you go about actually testing this? Uh, what was the process? So, so I, I mean, to be honest, this is a this is a finding we didn't really want to find, um, you know, because the the idea of the riot actually, in, you know, putting a, a number on the religious riot, increasing the vote share in the Indian context. Uh, so let me explain the background. We're looking at state elections in India. We were looking at you know the post independence period after 1950 uh, up until about 2006, and we're looking at riot outcome. We're looking to see whether if there was a religious conflict between Hindus and Muslims, did this affect the state election result of the national party, the BJP? And we're showing that it increases the vote share of the BJP by 5 to 7% if there's a riot. Now, 
uh, Luca, you're quite right to point out that, you know, part of the problem with actually being able to say this is happening is that we've got what economists call endogeneity issues and so forth. So one of the things that we had to show is where did the causality, how did the causality go? Did it go from the riots to the elections or was it that the elections was actually causing the riots? That's the obvious question somebody would ask. And so in order to investigate this, um, I should say that, you know, the, you know, many Indian journalists have been writing about this for many, many years that, uh, you know, that the riots were they felt were sometimes uh, responsible for the outcomes. What we were doing was to try and show the causality. And the way we did this was uh, to use something uh, and something to be a little technical here. Uh, it's something that uh, it's a strategy that economists use uh, called an instrumental variable strategy. So so essentially in simple English, what, what we were trying to do is to say that uh, when a riot actually occurs, it's probably occurring because uh, people from different religious communities are mingling uh, in, in you know, crowded circumstances. So um, we looked at when a Hindu festival, and Hindu festivals follow a lunar calendar, um, when a Hindu festival falls on a Friday, which is the holy day we know for Muslims, and then we're looking to see, and because the, the Hindu festival follows a lunar calendar, the dates for the festivals are essentially moving around every year. It's not like Christmas, which is always the 25th of December. The dates for the festivals are actually moving around. And so then you can see the probability of whether if a Hindu festival falls on a Friday, uh, does that variable, which we call the festival instrument, does it actually predict the incidence of the riots? Because we had you know, uh, uh, through an event study analysis, we had data on the riots. We then looked at the dates of the Hindu festivals and when they fell on Fridays for that whole period. And then we found that, you know, when a Hindu festival falls on a Friday, this variable is predicting very well the, uh, you know, the, the incidence of the riot. And so then we can use that variable to look at its effects on, you know, the the election outcomes, uh, which is the vote share of the BJP. And we find that that effect is very strong and it predicts, you know, it's showing the five to seven percent increase. So that's the way we demonstrated the causality. We were relying on the fact that, um, you know, lunar uh, events are, are, you know, establishing the date of the festival. And we kind of hope the lunar events are not affecting the, uh, the increase in the vote share. So this then uh, demonstrates, as you said, this causality, right, that it is actually these riots um, causing this increase in the vote share. But as you rightfully said, um, we don't really know the causal mechanism behind it. We don't know exactly what is happening here. However, in your article, you did look at uh, kind of the results around your results a bit to kind of have a bit of a guess about what process is happening uh, in, in people's minds. Uh, can you talk a bit about uh, what you found there and maybe speculate a bit about what this might mean, what is motivating people? So in our work, we actually found that this effect uh, was temporary. So it affected, uh, it wasn't a permanent effect. So uh, the riot can affect the electoral outcome, but then that effect doesn't persist. Um, uh, we did look at whether voter turnout may have been an important factor that affected this, uh, but it, it, it wasn't voter turnout. Uh, we think that, uh, you know, as I said, we, we don't say very much about the mechanisms because we don't investigate the mechanisms explicitly. But what we all we can say is that the effect is, is uh, transitory, it, it's a temporary, and that it doesn't last more than uh, the year. But what we do also show is that the effect of the riot is 
is not just in the district, uh, you know, uh, you know where the riot occurs, but may extend to about four districts away. That's the other finding we also show. Um, so, so that was another aspect of the work that we were actually looking at: was the geographical, spatial distribution of how far the riot actually had the effect on uh, the electoral outcome, because electoral constituencies and you know how far the influence of the riot extends may not necessarily be you know be the same um so i think you know our our uh, feeling is that um you know uh, the riot does affect the electoral outcome but it doesn't really affect it through the channel of voter turnout it's not like people are scared and you know staying staying home because of the riot can you just uh begin to speculate then about what this mechanism might be did you come up with any any guesses even if they're not um or even if they're still speculative so i think you know the one guess i wouldn't i hope was not happening is that the riot was being incited in order to influence the 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 election outcome i mean we have no evidence for this um, it, there's a lot of journalistic uh, writing in India, which has been alluding to this for some time now. Um, as I said, all we were doing was really just documenting the quantitative evidence. Does it really have an effect? And we're showing, you know, yes, you know, if you just look at the bare bones of the of of the of the data, the when a riot occurs, it's having the effect on the electoral outcome. Um, I hope it's not because, you know, people know that and that therefore the riot has actually been incited for whatever cause. I think the way to actually analyze this would be to go much more deeply into the causes of each of the riots, uh, you know, in each of the you know uh, years that, that we found. And we have the data uh, for on the causes, the, the purported causes of the riots. It was an event study, so we had to extract the data from Times of India newspaper reports. So we have a purported cause of the riot, but, you know, again, this is where I think surveys would be really useful uh, to actually go back and actually talk to people there about, um, you know, uh, what were the causes they felt for the riots, because even newspaper versions of, uh, of, of reported incidents may have their own bias based on the bias of the newspaper and so forth as well. Uh, we actually try to correct for some of these things in the work. But I think, you know, you need, a, a, I think, a much more in-depth analysis of when a riot occurs, uh, a very detailed case study of what were the circumstances in which occur, it occurred and why. And that will give you an insight uh, into whether it was incited or whether it was, uh, you know, there was some other natural cause uh, for it that just, you know, exploded. So there's a, a fairly bleak conclusion here, which is that at least in the cases you looked at, religious riots and religious violence are reliably associated with an increase in vote share for the majority party. Majority in terms of number of votes and also a majority in the sense that they represent the majority religion. Do you think we can learn anything from this finding about what we might be able to do to limit this kind of religious violence? Yeah. No, I think that that's a, an extremely important question we need to be thinking much more about. I think, um, you know, many economists in other contexts have written that when you have what they call low state capacity, so there's weak punishment, uh, essentially, when, you know, if you incite a riot, the, the, you know, the punishment is weak, then you're much more likely to have instances of what we've, what we've you know, just here described. So I think, you know, one thing to focus on is making sure that, uh, you know, you have strong state capacity rather than, uh, you know, weak state capacity. 
The other area, which is what we were talking about earlier, is I think actually the provision of the public goods might help a lot in this respect. So one of the things I'm arguing is that when you're providing the non-religious services, the public goods and so forth, this actually mitigates the potential for conflict. If the conflict is arising over the distribution of water, the distribution of health, the distribution of credit and such things, if you're actually providing some of these basic services, that might mitigate the potential for conflict in the future among the very same groups that are, you know, are engaging in the riot. So I think dealing with, you know, sort of institutions and state capacity, looking at public goods, and also I think... um, uh, there is a role here for the media as well. You know, uh, you know, the reporting of riots, uh, raising awareness about, you know, other religious communities, uh, you know, responsible media, um, you know, legislation against discrimination. You know, these are all the things I think that essentially will, will, will um, you know, probably come out in terms of public policy that you can do uh, in order to make sure that the riot is, is, uh, you know, that we don't have this bleak conclusion. As I said, this was one of the few papers that Anand Srivastava and I wrote together where, you know, we really didn't like the finding that we found. Uh, And, and, you know, we, we, you know, we reported it as scholars as you must, uh, but, but, you know, I hope it will also engender a wider discussion uh, exactly along the lines that you're suggesting. You know, what is it then that we can do to make Make sure that the conflict doesn't actually translate uh, into the, you know, the increase in, in in the vote share. And there there is like a small silver lining to this, right? In the sense that you did find that this is just a temporary effect. So there's a glimmer of hope in the findings. The glimmer of hope. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been talking about the economic relevance of religious institutions, for instance, in the sense that they provide non-religious services and goods but obviously just to talk about these things is to skirt around the fact that to a large extent religions are just a bundle of beliefs right and presumably some of those beliefs like this idea of the protestant work ethic are going to affect culture and they're going to affect things like religious growth are there any beliefs in particular or religious attitudes which you haven't mentioned, which you think are really interesting and might be a good kind of object for further study? In my work, I haven't looked so much at the role of beliefs influencing the economic activity. As we were talking earlier, I've been looking much more at the relationship uh, the, the, the other way around. But I think, you know, where perhaps economists can contribute to this discussion of beliefs is is uh, actually doing a lot more of what we call experimental economic studies of uh, to try and parcel out the difference between beliefs uh, on on the one hand and other factors uh, through which religion might uh, might operate. Um, you know, uh, uh, there is this, this methodology is used very commonly in other aspects of development economics. It's been used less in the context of religion, but I think that this may be an area where, you know, we can actually try and get at what are the beliefs that, um, you know, ultimately we think is going to have some effect on economic, uh, uh, some effect on economic activity. And here it may be, you know, uh, beliefs about, you know, areas like we were talking about earlier, areas like schooling uh, and religious schooling in particular that are actually quite important. I think that's going to be an area where you can do interesting economics research, where it does affect, uh, you know, educational outcomes and eventually employment outcomes and so forth. 
And um, you know, if these religious beliefs are important and they're complementary to uh, you know other beliefs, then this might then affect uh, the ability of a person to acquire an education. For example, there is uh, some research, for example, that's shown that, that you know Jewish religious beliefs were very complementary for the Jewish community with secular education, and this was responsible for the success of the Jewish community in historical periods. Um, so, so, so like that, I think you know research in those kinds of areas. Uh, that's looking at uh, religion and schooling, uh, I think would actually be quite significant. Um, this isn't like a belief per se, but one interesting area as well is Islamic finance laws. Yes. Um, could you, and I know um, this isn't like necessarily your field of work per se, but for listeners interested in this, could you maybe highlight one or two studies uh, for them to to learn more? Yes, I mean, I would definitely read the work of Timur Kuran, a professor at Duke University, who's written, you know, some wonderful books and articles uh, that has talked specifically about uh, the Islamic uh, institutions that have affected development in the Middle East. Uh, you might also like to look at the work of Jared Rubin, uh, who has a recent book uh, in the last few years, which has also been looking at, uh, you know, many of these economists have been looking at the Middle East in uh, uh, compared to the West and looking at, uh, in particular, um, you know, various legal institutions as well as financial institutions and practices that first have been responsible for differential growth in these areas. Um, it is, you know, this is a, absolutely a budding area of scholarship uh, for people who are working, you know, on that uh, region. But definitely, you know, the, Timur Quran also has a wonderful paper that was published in the Journal of Economic Literature in the last couple of years, uh, which is on Islam and economic development specifically. Uh, so if there are, you know, listeners out there who are interested in that area, uh, I would certainly look at the work of these scholars. So one way uh, religion might also be important for economic growth is through its role as social capital and through its role in establishing trust as well. Can you just explain basically what that means? Yes. So when we're thinking about social capital or the economist's idea of social capital, we're really thinking about norms and networks uh, that are based on notions of reciprocity. So membership of clubs and groups. This could be a football club. It could be a choir. It could be a religious group. So that's really what we're thinking about uh, with social capital. And we think that these norms and networks are actually very important for the development of the individual and the development of the community. You get greater returns from being a member of a group if there are others who are also members of the same group. So, for example, if you learn a new language, if others also speak the same language, you get more benefit from learning the language because there's lots of people speaking the same language. Um, so that benefit and essentially this externality that you get from being a member of a particular group, uh, that's really where these notions of social capital are very important. And that's where religion also comes into it, because religion fosters, if you're, uh, you know, with other co-religionists in your group, this might foster trust, this might foster networks of various kinds. And, um, you know, these norms and networks might actually be important for your own and for your community's development. So that's how, the, you know, religion ties in with these broader notions of trust and social capital. Can you briefly explain the difference between bonding and bridging capital and why that distinction might be important? Yes. So this was work that was actually done by Robert Putnam, uh, my colleague here in the economics faculty, Professor Parthadas Gupta. Many people have written on these concepts. Um, so the idea of bonding social, bonding social capital is really where you're emphasizing 
the homogeneity and networks within a particular group. So we're thinking about, you know, people who belong essentially to the same group. The bridging social capital is what sociologists call the strength of weak ties. So this is essentially where you're looking at uh, links across groups. So in the first instance, for example, you might think of, you know, people who are members of the same choir or the same football club. Uh, they would be an example of, you know, bonding social capital. If we're thinking about relations between Hindus and Muslims in rural India, that could be an example of bridging social capital. You're thinking of ties across different communities. So the first is about, you know, vertical and integration and so forth within the same group. The other is about uh, integration across groups that are disparate. Um, and that's really the difference between the bonding and the bridging. And we would say both were important for development, I should add. You know, we think that both bonding and bridging social capital are important for successful economic development. We've talked about so much uh, and so many different studies here in the economics of religion, but this is actually relatively a new field still. And I wanted to ask, um, you know, being one of the, the pioneering researchers in this field, um, why do you think it has suddenly exploded uh, over the last decades or so? And can you give us an insight about what areas might be at the forefront uh, in the future? So, Luca, that's very kind, but I should, I should probably say that I'm not one of the pioneering researchers in the field. I think the person who actually talked about it was Adam Smith. He, he wrote first, actually, about the economics of religion about, you know, 200 years ago uh, and then, you know, for a very long time ago. And then economists kind of forgot about it in the middle. And then Larry Anacone and Gary Becker and Ellie Berman and many of these other scholars, um, you know, did uh, resurrect the field very much so, you know, more recently. Um, so I think, you know, we, we, if you actually go back to some of the classic economics texts, there is a lot of discussion about what we would today think of as the economics of religion, but which was not defined as the economics of religion in those days. I think what is, but you know, you're, you're absolutely right to say that more recently in the last few couple of decades, this field really has taken off. It is very much a new field in economics, but it has taken off. And I think it's partly been driven by um, uh, new data that has become available on religion. So, and so people have been able to work on it. It's been driven by lots of enthusiastic, motivated graduate students, I should say, who have been excited by this area and by this topic and are doing, even as we speak, wonderful PhDs and, you know, writing papers uh, in this. Um, those of us who are part of this community working in this area have a very strong association that's called the Association for the Study of Religion, Economics and Culture. We have regular conferences and uh, have, you know, I had one in Cambridge a couple of years ago, and, you know, and so there's been a lot of mushrooming of interest because the community has uh, actually had very good social capital uh, and, uh, and there have been great graduate students and I think fundamentally people are interested in interesting ideas and global phenomena you know religion is not going away uh, you know despite economic growth and changes in the wider world or COVID-19 uh, you know or, or any of these changes so I think um, you know why we're seeing uh, a significant rise in papers and books in this area is because it's an interesting phenomena the ideas in it are uh, challenging our young graduate students and uh, hopefully you know all of us can provide them with the encouragement to take this field forward uh, you know in good ways in in years to come in the next let's say five years or so of your own research is there some particular question that you would really like to see answered so i've just started uh 
a project at the moment with uh, actually with Anand Srivastava, the co-author on the other paper, and Girish Behel in Australia on religion and COVID-19. So one of the things that, uh, you know, certainly we're doing even now is to, you know, given the circumstances in which all of us have found ourselves, is actually to look at uh, whether religious networks influenced uh, at all the spread of the disease and uh, what has been the effect of uh, uh, religion on uh, people's mental health in a period where they couldn't get direct access to religious services in a conventional way. Um, So this is a project which we've been actually embarked on and doing. We're conducting surveys at the moment. They're online surveys, obviously not in-person surveys. Uh, We're doing it in the US at the moment. Uh, Depending on whether we can get grant funding, we'll see whether we can extend it to other countries. But this is the immediate project that I'm uh, working on at the moment. There's also other projects which we're doing on uh, religion and labor markets in India, which is carrying on from previous research. But I think the immediate project is is, is definitely looking at whether uh, this crisis, which we know has had so many effects on other aspects of the economy, whether it's also affected religion as well. Has studying religion influenced your own faith? Or is that a bit like asking someone who studies the economics of crime whether they are themselves a criminal? <laughs> Yeah. No, I mean, so I, so I, I was always have always been religious, uh, you know, and Hindu and so forth. I think where the study of religion has helped me greatly is that it's actually made me more interested in other faiths. Um, and I've learned a lot about, uh, you know, religions I didn't, uh, you know, tr- religious traditions I didn't grow up in. Um, and that's actually been extremely rewarding uh, for somebody who studies uh, religion. I don't think being a scholar of religion has necessarily impacted, uh, you know, has, has either increased or decreased, you know, the level of faith I already had. But it's definitely widened my understanding and knowledge of other religious traditions. And that's been a tremendously rewarding experience yeah super okay uh penultimate question which we ask everyone what significant thing have you recently changed your mind about and why so actually i think um you know on on a on a flippant level the working from home um, i've uh, I, i've suddenly realized how much one can actually do from home um you know compared to to my earlier lifestyle on a more serious note with respect to our conversations about religion um the secularization thesis i think um you know i i was I initially, when I started working in this area, I did think secularization would happen automatically. That's the one thing I've definitely, uh, um, you know, changed my mind about. Uh, I don't see the influence of religion going away uh, anytime soon, certainly not in my lifetime. Okay, very last question. What three books or articles, films, whatever else, would you recommend for anyone interested in finding out more about everything that we've talked about? Okay, so there's a lot out there you can read, uh, but I would go with, um, so so Larry Anacone is, uh, you know, in some ways the founder of this field, I think. Um, he's written a, a very nice paper called An Introduction to the Economics of Religion, which was published in the Journal of Economic Literature uh, in the 90s. Uh, I did an update of that in the same journal in 2016, and Timur Kuran's paper, we've already talked about that, um, on Islam and development. So that certainly, I think someone, uh, you know, the, those three JEL papers may be useful for an initial introduction. Uh, I just finished reading a wonderful book, which I would recommend. It's called Persecution and Toleration 
The Long Road to Religious Freedom by uh, Noel Johnson and Mark Koyama. It's looking at um, uh, the growth of religious freedom in medieval Europe and how that then paved the way for the development of nationalism and liberalism and uh, all of these ideas and the role uh, particularly of state capacity and treatment of religious minorities and so forth. That's a great book. I would uh, again recommend reading that. And if you're interested particularly in um, the Middle East, uh, there's a fantastic paper by our colleague at Oxford, Eric Cheney. Um, he published a paper in a journal uh, in economics called Econometrica uh, in 2013. And it's about the relationship between religious structures and political processes in Egypt. Um, again, so I would recommend these three uh, main, main you know, JEL papers, the Johnson Koyama book and uh, the Cheney paper in Econometrica. And because you weren't too humble to mention your own, I'll just say you've got your own book as well. Uh, the Economics of Religion in India. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> which is very accessible and a great read. And you also co-edited uh, Advances in the Economics of Religion, which is a bit more technical uh, for listeners who really want to delve in deeper. That's very kind. Thank you so much, Luca. Shriya thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. That was Shriya Ayer on the Economics of Religion. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Shreer. There you'll find links to all the papers and books referenced in our conversation, as well as a blog post explaining the key ideas we discussed. We would be very grateful if you could leave an honest review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to this. If you have constructive feedback, there is also a link on the website to an anonymous form, or you can get in touch with us directly by emailing feedback at hearthisidea.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to support the show more directly and help us pay for hosting these episodes online, you can leave a tip by following a link in the description. Thanks very much for listening.